Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue to celebrate the Christmas season. Do we want to know about the bad turns in life ahead of time? Perhaps our lives are better left to chance? Join us for the message, Harlots in the Holy Family, Anna and Simeon. Welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Do you want to know ahead of time about the bad turns in life? Or maybe perhaps our lives are better left to chance? Well, we're going to explore that a little bit later in our message, the last in our series, Harlots in the Holy Family, Anna and Simeon. This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 2, beginning with verse 21. Now listen to the word of God. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Has there ever been a time in your life when you wanted something desperately? When the desired object was just like all you could think about? There were several times when I was a kid when I would get just obsessed over a certain toy and I just couldn't wait until Christmas morning to see if Santa had brought it. And my siblings and I would get so excited. We would wake up at the crack of dawn, go jump on our parents' beds until they, until they woke up. We weren't allowed into the, into the living room, however, to see what Santa had left us until we had all gathered as a family outside the living room door and then we all went in together some of us running in together. Well, I said all my siblings were excited on Christmas morning, but actually my oldest sister was 10 years older than me, and so by the time I can remember these Christmases, I'm like three or four, which makes her 13 or 14. And so really by that time, she was actually a sullen young teenager and actually seemed pretty put out that her younger siblings did not allow her to sleep in. But I'm sure she was very excited when she was younger. Now, as we all get older, the types of things that we dis desperately wish for change. Now, we still enjoy our toys, new cell phones, new iPad, maybe great jewelry. But unless we're just a hopeless technology junkie or jewelry aficionado, we can usually wait fairly patiently until we can get our hands on those things. No, the things that we want most desperately are usually not things at all. We want our loved one to be healed from disease. We want a troubled relationship to be restored. We want that job that we just know we're perfect for so that we can quit the tedious one we're in now. Not that that is what I wish for, by the way. <laughs> Pastoral work can be many things, but tedious is not one of them. It's, actually, it's always a great, a, lot, a great deal of drama, in fact. What we want is for our children to be safe and happy. And we want someday to see the face of our grandchildren, great-grandchildren, or even our great-great-grandchildren. And we want to die in peace, knowing that we have seen with our very own eyes the salvation of the Lord. In today's scripture passage, we're going to meet two older people, who have been waiting their entire lives to see the face of the Messiah of the Lord with their own eyes. You could say that the little child Jesus was the most wanted child in all of history. 
And I think coming to earth as a baby was a stroke of genius on God's part. Martin Luther said that God became small in Christ for us. By becoming incarnate in a baby, God was able to show us God's own heart and thereby win over our hearts. As one pastor wrote, infants wield a kind of power. Muscular men with calloused hands become gentle as pillows when handed a baby. Potent people with gruff voices adopt a falsetto and coo to an infant. God came down not to thrash evildoers or crush the Romans, but as an infant to elicit love, to nurture tenderness. In the Bible story, we find Mary and Joseph fulfilling all that the Jewish law required of new parents. Jewish boys were always circumcised on the eighth day after their birth and officially given their name at that time. And this ritual was so important that it was to be formed even if that eighth day fell on a Sabbath when almost all other kinds of work or endeavor were forbidden. In this case, the baby was named Jesus just as the angel had instructed when appearing to Mary. And the name Jesus in Hebrew means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. And now verses 22 through 32. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Thirty-three days after the circumcision, the parents would bring every firstborn male baby to the priest in the temple in order to pay for the redemption of the firstborn. It was believed in ancient times that every firstborn male belonged to the Lord, so the father paid a kind of temple tax of five shekels to, an, to in essence, buy the baby back from God. And this was preferable to the pagan practice of sacrificing the firstborn male child of the gods, often by throwing them into fire. Also at that time, the mother was required to present a sacrifice as ritual purification for childbirth. And she presented a sheep for a purification offering and either a turtle dove or a pigeon for a burnt offering to atone for sin. But if a family was poor and could not afford a sheep, then they could bring two turtle doves or two pigeons, just as Mary and Joseph did. The Gospel writer Luke takes great pains to make sure that the reader understands 
that Mary and Joseph fulfilled all the requirements of the Jewish law. Luke himself was a Gentile, but it was very important to him to place the story of Jesus as just a further chapter in the story of how God was bringing redemption to all people. That story that began with the call of the Jewish ancestors Abraham and Sarah was always meant to lead up to the coming of the Christ and the incorporation of the Gentiles into the people of God. And so there in Simeon, the Holy Spirit, the law, the temple, they all came together to fulfill the promises and the purposes of God. It is when Mary and Joseph are coming to pay this redemption of the firstborn and to offer this sacrifice for Mary's purification that they meet Simeon. Now, in all probability, Mary and Joseph probably did not know who Simeon was at all. And I can only imagine how disconcerting it would be for a total stranger to come up to you, take your baby into his arms, and just start prophesying over him. Luke tells us that Simeon was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him, and that he had been promised by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Messiah before he died. Verses 33 through 35. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Well, after prophesying that Jesus would be a light of revelation, or a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel, then Simeon turns to Mary and privately offers her a much more troubling pronouncement. This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Not exactly what a young mother wants to hear, but it was true nonetheless. Jesus was a light of revelation, and whenever a light is turned on, it creates shadows. And some will go toward the light, and some will slink into the shadows, and some will actually fight against the light. Encounters with Jesus always reveal the inner thoughts and the true hearts of people. Before we get too judgmental, however, we need to acknowledge that when the light of Christ illumines our own hearts and minds, we'll for sure find both lightness and darkness there. The question is whether or not we're going to gravitate to the light or to the shadows. Will we walk in with Jesus or just stay hidden in the darkness? Simeon reminds us that salvation comes at great cost. It'll cost Mary her peace of mind, She's never going to stop worrying about her baby, and it'll eventually cost her baby his life. This great cost is kind of like the shadow side of salvation. The child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and among those who fall and rise will be the child himself. Before the story of Jesus on earth is finished, He'll be brought down in death before being raised in new life. And likewise, our lives in Christ will be a series of falls and risings until we ourselves are finally raised one day in resurrection. 
I think the most poignant part of Simeon's prophecy concerns Mary herself. Think about it, just, just a few weeks before, she had felt the sensation of this baby kicking her in her womb. But the time will come when that feeling will be replaced by the searing pain of a sword that will pierce her soul as she watches her baby be tortured to death. You kind of think of it as the spear, that spear that pierces the side of Jesus in crucifixion will reach into his mother's heart as well. The good news is that that sword does not have the last word. The Prince of Peace will rise again. And I think about this. Was there ever a person, another person in all of history, who more rejoiced at the sight of the risen Lord than his own mother? Sometimes we can also experience the Christmas season as one that pierces our own souls as we remember those who are no longer with us. The older we get, the more we know that that seasonal script of family happy bliss becomes more strained with time as our own families are increasingly spread out over that chasm that stands between this life and the next. Final reading is verse 36 to 38. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of God for the people of God. The writer Luke goes on to tell us about the prophet Anna. It says she was married in her youth for seven years, and she had lived as a widow ever since. And she was now 84 years old, which is a very old age indeed in the ancient world. One commenter noted that 84 is the resulting sum of multiplying 12 and 7. And 12 and 7 are considered holy numbers in the Bible. And therefore, anyone who has reached the age of 84 is especially holy. And I know that will come as good news to many of you. Now, in reality, there are times when young people can be the most insightful, particularly when it comes to modern technology or current culture. But there are other times, however, when nothing beats the wisdom of those who've lived a while on this earth. There's no substitute for life experience. There's no substitute for a a long-term relationship with God to give one insight into the human condition and the reality of the divine. Jewish theologian Abraham Heschel wrote, The years of old age are indeed formative years, rich in possibilities to unlearn the follies of a lifetime, to see through inbred self-deceptions, to deepen understanding and compassion, to widen the horizon of honesty, to refine the sense of fairness. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, who was also, I might add, actively engaged in ministry well into his late 80s, used this passage to encourage the elderly to continue to serve God. And so in reference to Simeon and Anna, John Wesley wrote, let the example of these aged saints 
animate those whose hoary heads like theirs are a crown of glory. But even though we don't know the specific words that Anna said to Mary, I think there's more here than simply being amazed by Anna's age. Luke describes Simeon as simply a man, but Anna he describes as a prophet. And she is furthermore one of only three people who are called prophets in all the Gospels. That's John the Baptist, Jesus, and Anna. Simeon appeared in the temple because he'd received a revelation from God, but Anna actually lived in the temple. And Luke tells us that she never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. The entire temple complex was huge, several acres. And it is a possibility that someone in power might have authorized her to stay there, perhaps in a small room. The name of her husband is never revealed, but we are told that she is the daughter of Phanuel. Now, you may not recognize this name, but you have heard it before, and relatively recently. If you recall, we had a three-part sermon series on the biblical character of Jacob found in the book of Genesis back in November. And in the third sermon, we explored how Jacob wrestled all night with a mysterious figure the night before he was to reunite with his brother Esau, from whom he had earlier swindled both the birthright and the blessing that was Esau's by virtue of being the firstborn son. As the dawn broke, Jacob was convinced that all night it had been God with whom he had wrestled. And Genesis tells us, Jacob called the place Penuel, saying, For I've seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. And then when Jacob meets his brother Esau and receives a generous welcome, he says, For truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God. So the name of Anna's father, Phanuel, is a form of the name Peniel that Jacob gave to that place where he wrestled God and received grace from his brother. So both Phanuel and Peniel mean face of God. And also, according to Jewish legend, Phanuel was the name of the four angels, of one of the four angels, who was always in the presence of God in heaven. It was Gabriel, Raphael, Michael, and Phanuel. So by telling us that Anna was the daughter of Phanuel, Luke is making sure we make the connection that Anna lived in the very presence of God and was so close to God that it could be said that she could behold and see the face of God. And therefore, when in the presence of Anna, then Mary and Joseph and Jesus were also before the face of God. Luke also specified that Anna came up to Mary and Joseph right as Simeon had said to Mary that a sword is going to pierce her soul. Luke says, at that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, we don't know what Anna said to Mary, and maybe we're not supposed to know. Maybe it was a private message, a private message from an elderly woman who'd seen it all, to a young mother who was just starting her life. But by praising God about redemption, she's reminding Mary that even if she is to know sorrow, it is all part of a larger story, a cosmic story, where the Messiah has not come to start a political or a military revolution, but a spiritual revolution of love that will end up 
having military and political implications. Because in the end, the kingdom of God will ultimately outpower any human institution. But does knowing about the sword to your soul ahead of time make it easier? Does knowing this help Mary or Joseph in their task of raising Jesus? And if you know that a sword is coming in your own life, does it help to know that it's going to be for a higher purpose? Does knowing that make it any easier? And there's no right answers to these questions because it depends on the situation and depends on the, on the persons involved. Some people want to know, for example, that they have a genetic predisposition to cancer or Alzheimer's, and some people don't. Then either, either one is okay. It does make me think of the words to uh, the Garth Brooks song from many years ago called The Dance. And now I'm glad I didn't know the way it all would end, the way it all would go. Our lives are better left to chance. I could have missed the pain, but I'd have had to miss the dance. Something I've had to remind myself many times in life. I think we can learn at least two things from Mary and Joseph's encounter with Simeon and Anna. First of all, we may want to ask ourselves, is there a sword hanging over us that we need to perceive? Or in other words, is there some hard truth out there in our lives that we need to recognize and face? Is there a shadow hanging over us that we willfully choose to ignore rather than face the truth of, of who we are or where we are in life? And then secondly, what words of hope and encouragement is God trying to communicate to you? And is there a prophet in your life who is bringing you a word from God? And is God whispering these words of grace and redemption in your ear? Both the swords and the words of hope can be hard to perceive. Sometimes we willfully choose to ignore either or both of them. But God never stops trying to communicate that grace and redemption. So for the coming year, let us all endeavor to open our eyes to whatever it is that we need to perceive, both the swords and the words of grace. And then may we be prophets and witnesses to that grace and redemption of God. And so that through us all, may all of God's children be blessed. Amen. And now receive this benediction. May you be filled with the wonder of Mary, the obedience of Joseph, the joy of the angels, the eagerness of the shepherds, the determination of the Magi, and the peace of the Christ child. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we will celebrate Epiphany. The message will be brought to us by Minister of Worship, Reverend Dr. Garth Baker Fletcher, what Martin Luther King did not say. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.